This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with David Walker. He's a professor in Australian studies at Deakin University and he joined me on the phone to talk about his essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. David spoke about his essay entitled Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century. I'm really delighted to have with me a professor of Australian studies and he is based at Deakin University. He was also affiliated with the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne and his name is Professor David Walker and he's written an essay for the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine which has just come out and uh, on the cover the title is Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century. So I'm welcoming David now and thank you so much, David, for joining us. Not at all, Amy. Uh, it's so fascinating to see another side of history that I hadn't actually encountered and um, that's saying something because I actually studied Australian history and this period quite a lot, but it, it hadn't really come up. The other side of the White Australia debate or discussion, we're often told about the White Australia policy, this idea of a pure race uh, that Australia seemed to be quite preoccupied with and made its official policy for a number of years. But in this essay, you really take us on a journey around where this idea of Asia came from, Australia's perception of Asia and the various countries that make up that massive region um, and also that Australians weren't all necessarily critical or hostile to the idea of Asian immigration. Yes, I mean, the essay begins really in the 1820s, it starts way back, uh, which for a foreign affairs journal is a very worrying place to start <laughs> because they don't like to go back that far. But in the 18, late 1820s, there was an argument that Australia would be greatly benefited if it had um, Chinese immigrants because the notion was that it was a continent that really demanded uh, development. The Chinese, according to the the writer, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who, who was the person talking about systematic colonisation of Australia, Wakefield argued that the Chinese had uh, tremendous capacities as agriculturalists. Uh, they'd had a proven record both in China and through Southeast Asia, and that their skills would be very uh, useful in Australia as well, so that Australia would be t turned, in his language, from a wilderness which is hardly a very correct characterisation of Australia, but would be turned from a wilderness into a productive garden. So the idea appears fairly early on that, that a Chinese or an Asian influence or, or dimension to Australian development would be very beneficial, would be very uh, helpful. And part of that argument, or keyed into that argument, is the notion that the Australian continent itself is either part of Asia or belonging in some ways within an Asian setting or region. So that uh, idea comes in very, very early. And that if the, if you like, the essence of the continent is, is as much Asian as it is uh, European or Aboriginal, then maybe it needs 
an Asian import or an Asian dimension to make it uh, to work properly. So the outpost idea is, okay, the British have settled this place and they're trying to turn it into, uh, in some sense, a replica of, of Britain stroke Europe. But underneath that is this idea that there's a, a kind of an Asian impulse or an Asian undertow that will continually draw European Australia towards Asia and that if Australia is to succeed that it needs to notice or pay attention to to that dynamic. You talk about you know that early example of Edward Gibbon Wakefield in the 1820s and then you follow that through with further primary evidence from others who followed Wakefield for example you write about in 1888 Minister Reverend James Jefferies who had a, a multiracial vision of Australia's future and you write quote he imagined how Chinese Japanese and Indian settlers could contribute to a glorious new Australia each would bring distinctive attributes and then you also follow with some further examples what was really striking to me was your example about the Sydney Morning Herald arguing that an infusion of Chinese blood would prevent white settlers from degenerating into a soft and spongy race in Australia's hot climate Reading those um, evidence pieces together was very striking and not the narrative that um, many people would understand to be part of 19th century Australia. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the points I was trying to make, so I'm so pleased that you picked it up. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's a kind of lost uh, narrative in a way because it doesn't fit the, uh, the mainstream story terribly well. So often when you've got a big story running and um, uh, things come along that don't fit it very well, it's easier to leave them on the cutting room floor Mm. to try and integrate them. But the Sydney Morning Herald argument is a very interesting one because it goes to the question of of climate, which refers back to my earlier point, that if you try to assess the nature of the Australian continent, it's certainly warmer than the United Kingdom. And the top third of Australia, maybe the top half of Australia, lies either within or near the tropics. So a fair part of Australia is tropical. And in the thinking of the 19th century and climate-related thinking, which is also very close to racial thinking, that is, particular racial characteristics are determined by climate, then Australia is very ambiguously situated racially you know that the northern part of australia is seen to be as least as much asian as it might be thought european and even coming down into what though the southern parts of australia that we might now think of as more mediterranean in climate there's still the view that these places are hotter than the united kingdom which had framed the anglo-celtic race So again, the argument is that climate will change the racial characteristics of Australians and that in order to fortify them or protect them, going back to the Sydney Morning Herald argument about the soft and spongy race, what you might need is an infusion of Chinese blood to um, help withstand the climatic pressures that Australia will necessarily bring to the colonising enterprise. So you need you need to strengthen 
Lincoln and Fortify. Now, these are all racial arguments that we wouldn't take terribly seriously now. And going back to Jeffress, he had fixed attributes for each of the categories that you mentioned there. So the Chinese are hardworking, the Indians are spiritual, and the Japanese have got you know clever craft and uh, artistic sensibilities. So none of them could become the other. You know, you couldn't be Japanese and spiritual or Chinese and artistic or Indian and hardworking because <laughs> you were, you were labelled, you had, you had your racial label. So Jeffress is coming from a racialised set of arguments around, um, you know, that are prominent in the late 19th century. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting representation of what a multiracial Australia might look like and it's not a horror story as many of the late 19th century depictions of racial mixing were so he's running against the horror story idea he's saying this might be pretty terrific you know we might get something really unique and interesting creative and worthwhile from this mixing and mingling of the races and their uh, various attributes so that idea again is not well presented through the histories because it it seems such in in some ways it seems such a minority view that you need hardly take any notice of it but one of the other arguments i would run although i didn't present this for the australian foreign affairs article is that an argument that might seem pretty marginal in one period can become much more dominant in a later period so in some ways you need the marginal voices you need to attend to the marginal voices because you might hear something there that later on really becomes a much more dominant uh, narrative. And I think that's part of what's happening here. You're getting people experimenting with the idea of a more fluid understanding of race, uh, a more fluid understanding of how racial identities might be formed and reformed in Australia and how there might be benefits to be derived from that. So they're playing around with the idea of, of something beneficial or hopeful or optimistic coming from this which is certainly a minority view in the 19th century but if you leap forward a century into multicultural australia and the celebration of diversity and all the rest of it then that's become in some ways the dominant narrative of our uh, of contemporary australia you know we we are all embracing diversity and we love diversity and all the rest of it so that argument has gradually um, risen to the surface to become a much more powerful one in our uh, society today. Yes, and if we follow through the thread or the idea that continues to get developed into the 20th century, particularly in the 1930s, we saw the rise of eugenics and a fascination with blood and race and mixing and all of those kind of elements that is often referred to in a a really negative light. We see a whole range of constructions of the ideal Australian body or the ideal Australian male. But there's also another current which continues on this idea that you've identified in the 19th century, which was an ideal of a new Eurasian stock, which you reference a range of people 
talking about and imagining and that was so in um, 1949 by demographer W.D. Borrie and you follow on and, and talk about the Eurasian ideal. You say the Eurasian ideal was always seen as European Asian, never as black white, which was unacceptable to race theorists. So where did that Eurasian idea go or how long did it hang around as as an ideal well in some ways the eurasian argument has um, made a bit of a resurgence recently so there's now more discussion about australia being a, a eurasian nation and one of the other uh, observations i make there is that in 1983 i think it was paul keating said that australia would become the first eurasian nation and the eurasian the eurasian idea has you know made a bit of a, a bit of a comeback but part of my argument there is that it was always embedded in a pretty racialized kind of language and you've identified part of that because it was always seen and getting back to that need to have an infusion of asian blood the old sydney morning herald argument that we need we need asia because asia might or, or an asian infusion because asia might prepare us for the continent that we've inhabited we absolutely don't want Aboriginal bloodlines to to be strengthened and continued because they're relegated to a different category racially. So they're they're seen as inferior in a way that you know Chinese bloodlines are not. I mean, there are people who will obviously say and do obviously say very very negative things about the Chinese. But there's another kind of division operating there that um, in the fancy language of the late 19th century some races were regarded as evanescent or passing races you know they disappear so and their bloodlines were considered to be weak so aboriginal australians were thought of as evanescent an evanescent race who would pass their bloodlines would uh, would diminish and finally uh, you know fade away but the Chinese were never regarded in that light at all. I mean, the Chinese were regarded as being a very powerful uh, bloodline, which is part of the reason why you have the fanaticism around white Australia, you know, that one drop of Chinese blood is going to prove uh, so enormously powerful that you'll never get rid of it. So there's there's a kind of argument there that um, the Chinese are particularly worrying because of the strength of their their bloodlines and indeed the depth of their civilization you know you won't you won't breed them out let them in you won't breed them out so the the eurasian idea has its origins in that um notion of australia as an ambiguously placed continent somewhere between europe and asia so we're going to need an infusion of asian blood to survive but it's always couched in, as I say, in a, in a white stroke Asian or European Asian framing, never as a, as a, a European Aboriginal or European African American framing. So the, the term, and maybe I'm being too much the historian here, but it seems to me that the Eurasian ideal is fatally compromised by its, uh, by its racial history, you know, that it's such a difficult term to to renovate for contemporary purposes if you like and no australian future whatever that future might be but no australian future can seriously contemplate a worthwhile 
place for itself without Aboriginal Australia being, you know, factored into those calculations of who we are, what we are and what, what we want to become. You highlight there such a really interesting tension that still exists around identity and uh, facing Asia and seeing it as part of our future, which you really highlight at the beginning of your essay, that Asia has pretty much always been couched as a future-looking prospect and that has also I guess hindered our progression perhaps in the in the way that we interact with various countries in Asia and how we also perceive our own self. In terms of that future-looking focus, why did that come about? Well, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> how, long, how long have you got? Um, it's. I think it's partly the the nature of the Australian settlement project itself. You know, we began with convicts. The past wasn't serving us terribly well. You know, it's not a past you necessarily wanted to look back to. First of all, it was seen to be a pretty shallow one, but there was also seen to be a pretty ugly one. You know, all these criminals and ne'er do wells were the uh, the stock from which we came. And then, if you didn't take seriously Aboriginal culture and in uh, in the 19th century you didn't know how deep that culture was anyhow you know because you were still working on biblical time frames which didn't allow much uh, depth for Aboriginal history at all so uh, the future was always one of the tropes or framings of where Australia Australia was always had a world ahead of it but never a world behind it and the future was seen to be one of our great uh, strengths and attributes, one of our great glories. You know, we, we would create something out of the freedoms that we enjoyed. And indeed, the lack of a past was often represented as being a good thing because that wasn't going to hold us back. We weren't going to be tied back to, you know, traditions and conventions and old patterns of thinking and so on. We're a new people. But the Asian future idea goes deep into the 19th century because the the idea of rising Asia, which we commonly associate with the 1980s, 1990s and after, was really an idea beginning to emerge in the late 19th century. So the idea that Asia was on the rise dates from the 1880s and the 1890s. So you have the Meiji Restoration in Japan in the late 1860s. So Japan is miraculously transformed and across a generation becomes one of these uh, sort of miracle nations across the Pacific. You know, strong navy, strong army, cohesive, artistic um, and all the rest of it. So there's that sense that you've got rising Japan, you've got very, you've got populous China, and that these and Australia is located in the Pacific. So the future is is looking increasingly oriented to the Pacific. So shifting from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Australia sits in the Pacific. The future is increasingly couched as an Asian future, and that Australia is the continent most directly located to face that future so in a way the other dimension of this argument is that of all the european societies on earth australia is the one that will first encounter 
the impact of rising Asia. Australia is the first continent that will have to think about and respond to the new cultural, political and economic power of Asia. And that's, a, that's an, again, an argument that comes up in the 1890s. There's, you know, Charles Pearson, a kind of late 19th century educator, intellectual historian in Melbourne, writes a book called National Life and Character, a Forecast. And Pearson argues exactly that case. I mean, his contention is that, that Australians are the first Europeans in the world who will see and have to come to terms with the rise of Asia, who will understand the profound implications of that geopolitical change. And that's a very, very interesting argument, I think. And so that pops up pretty early on. You know, that's, that's an 1890s argument. So around the, the world of people who are thinking uh, geopolitically and wondering about Australia's place in the world, Asia begins to figure more and more prominently in their thinking. Now, a lot of that thinking is predicated on danger and alarm. And there's a certain amount of invasion writing that takes place uh, from the 1880s onwards which argues that Australia is vulnerable to an Asian takeover, which is one of the other themes running through that essay. You know, when people think about, are we Asian yet? Historically, that argument would be, have we been overtaken by, have we been invaded by, have we been subsumed uh, into or, or incorporated into Asia yet? So a lot of the invasion writing argued that uh, Australia was so vulnerable to an Asian takeover that it would become Asian unless we managed to build up our defences and our security and so on and so forth. But the, you know, they're still sitting beneath that is this other argument about, like, like for example, there's a guy, I think I quoted that essay, uh, who says before the First World War that Japan will become Australia's major trading partner. So in the futurist language about Asia, there's the invasion story, but there's also, you know, the, the, the story about big markets and cultural and social and other opportunities that await Australia in Asia. Yes, and the better known discussions around Australia's earlier ties with Japan, mainly around the economy, as you say, but also defence and the fact that the British Empire were stepping away to some extent from committing to provide assistance to Australia whenever they require. And obviously Australians were concerned that Britain would send Japan to come and defend Australia in various circumstances. We then see further anxiety and that um, anxiety around the invasion narrative that you've just been describing with the bombing of Darwin. And then even up until last year, we've seen more discussion around the word invasion and also the concept of, of an infiltration or invasion of our telecommunication systems and defence systems. And, and that's something which continues on. And I was interested in your reference to Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, which has come out recently around that and and that you write that his claim exaggerates the reality. It's certainly dangerous to overemphasise something like Chinese government interference when there's only so many ways you could verify it if you're not part of ASIO or ASIS. 
Yes, I think the the concern I had there with that uh, with that book was partly the title, uh, which plays to a whole raft of invasion-related uh, speculation in and beyond Australia. But you go back to 1888, and um, there's William Lane, White or Yellow, a story of the Asian invasion of Australia in AD 1908. So the idea of Asian invasion as being Australia's future, mm. and that they'll just uh, sweep in and take all, you know, carry all before them, has a long history in our in our popular and it's often the most uh, common framing of what an asian future will look like you know it's going to be invasive they're going to take us over so to propose a uh, sober work of analysis about the possible impacts of chinese technologies and chinese government potential and actual interference in australian affairs by inserting the word invasion into that title strikes me as being you know fairly opportunistic both opportunistic and mischievous uh, really it's it's an attempt to grab it attention which i think has been on the whole successful you know i, I don't i don't see it as a very responsible way of arguing what's a pretty serious uh, set of propositions around um, you know who we are where we are and who's trying to um, you know shape our future Yes, and uh, there's also a distinction between China, the Chinese government, and also Chinese immigrants who were either born in China and have immigrated to Australia or those who have descended from um, immigrants and who were actually born here and have Chinese heritage, for example. So, yeah, it can be a bit dangerous. And you do reference the data that George Megalogenis has analysed around the proportion of uh, people who are of an Asian background background, particularly we've seen such a rise in uh, Asian backgrounds with international students. So I wanted to head to, before we finish this interview, the way that Keating, Paul Keating, our former Prime Minister, saw our engagement with Asia or wanted to see it and whether we've even come close to that and whether it is even a, a good aspiration to have from our perspective or from those in Asia. You write that he foresaw a time when more Australians spoke Asian languages and understood Asian cultures, where business people familiar with the Asia-Pacific valued Australians of Asian heritage. Our national culture would influence but also be shaped by our Asian neighbours. How far have we got in terms of reaching that plan or ideal? Yeah, that's not a bad question. (laughs) I think in terms of Asia literacy, in some ways that's always struggled. You know, the idea of Asia literacy in the education system, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, has always been from uh, the coining of the term in 1988, has always been a very... um, a compelling aspiration in a way, but it's been enormously difficult to get um, anywhere near that in terms of uh, Asian language uh, competency within the education system. So the number of students who take an Asian language is not particularly high and um, if anything is, is sort of falling away, but in any event it's not terribly convincing and what are we since um, so over 30 years since since 1988 and the coining of the term you'd have to say that the uh, the progress towards that has been uh, glacial 
but at other levels, you know, there's a lot of between Australia and Asia at a people-to-people level, so I think a lot of those people-to-people connections are stronger. Um, I'd, I also spent three years at Peking University recently, and I have to put in the... There are now over 30 Australian studies centres in China which um, examine one or other aspect of Australian society, you know, politics, culture, language, uh, international relations, economy and so on. So at the educational level, there are inter- interactions and connections. And most universities now are really very, very indebted to their Asian-based or Asian-origin academics, uh, many from mainland China, working in the sciences in particular. And, um, and, and so a lot of the research that's coming out of Australian universities is coming from, from uh, academics of an Asian and nothing particularly Chinese background. So there's a lot happening away from the headlines around Asia literacy, I think. I think of the level of government. It's been pretty disappointing. It's been inconsistent. You know, you get the Gillard White Paper, which is about engagement, and then within three weeks of uh, the Abbott government coming in the white paper is archived so you know you throw that away and then each new government and this is an argument that george megalogenes also makes in that issue of the of the journal that we've had we've had a problem with rookie prime ministers you know they don't have a strong understanding of foreign policy they're in power for three weeks uh, they're thrown out by someone else and so on and so we've got a constant churn of people with different agendas and different arguments and often different language, you know, so the, the language keeps changing around who we're engaging with and what Asia is and all the rest of it. So for your listeners, much of this is extremely confusing. You know, what, what, are we, what is Asia? What are we engaging with? What are we supposed to get out of it? What are they supposed to get out of it? All the rest of it. It's uh, something that we need to uh, have a more measured, thoughtful considered and consistent discussion about, I think. Mm, Yes, it's often abstract in terms of our discussion and commercialised. And I think to cap off our discussion, I really liked your comment about needing to get to know them as people, not just as customers, which I think is often the dominant way that at least the political class refer to people from um, the Asia-Pacific Yes, yes. Thank, thank you for identifying that very profound and worthwhile observation, uh, Amy. Yes. I don't know what this big noise is happening here. Oh, that's, uh, that's a phone, which we'll ignore. <laughs> but, um, yes, I mean, the, the customer idea is also an interesting attempt to sort of take the racial dimension out of it. So if the Chinese are, are represented as Chinese, that can be a bit worrying. If you turn them into customers, that's obviously a good thing because you don't have to worry about them quite so much then because they're just buying your stuff. But the problem with the customer formulation is that you need to know the cultural dynamic of, of um, Chinese buying practices. You know, why are Chinese wanting this product rather than that product or what makes them interested in you know brand names or whatever it is and in order to understand that you need to understand contemporary Chinese society and culture you need to know what's you know what's driving it what's making it tick what's making it work and um, you know that that's a that's a cultural social 
understanding of the Chinese, of Chinese society and the Chinese people. And customers is not going to do it for you. I mean, it might, mm. it might um, you know, calm nerves here, but it absolutely doesn't help you, you know, work out what your future in this region is going to be. David, you have done some fascinating work and it's so valuable to us today. And uh, as a historian, it just highlights how important history is to our current day perceptions of ourselves and others and, and how we live our lives now. So I really appreciate your article and also congratulate you on all the work you've done in this field and uh, mention that you have a new book coming out called Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian Region, which is out through University of West in Australia press so people can look up that as well as read your essay if they're interested and uh, thank you so much again Yes, thank you Amy and thank you for the, the questions and the interview It's my pleasure, hope to talk to you again That'll be great Thanks so much David That is Professor David Walker, who is uh, a professor in Australian studies at Deakin University and he's also affiliated with the Asia Centre at the University of Melbourne and he's written an essay in Australian Foreign Affairs magazine called Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century and is an excellent essay beautifully written and um, just so rigorous uh, historically and highlights such a range of evidence that we do not draw upon often around these issues of race and multiculturalism 